And we are looking at the first letter of Peter. Uh, if you don't know, Peter was one of the original uh, 12 disciples, and he is writing to Christians in uh, what we, know, we now know as uh, modern-day Turkey. And these early Christians, they are feeling the pressure, the growing pressure of being Christians. But as you read the letter, okay, you wouldn't get that impression from the tone of what Peter writes here. Okay, I want you to imagine that you are at a funeral and someone stands at the front and they start reminding you of all the wonderful things that you all knew, or maybe you didn't know, all the wonderful things that this person whose funeral it is did. Now, what is that person doing when they're saying all those great things? They're giving a eulogy. And that word eulogy comes from the Greek word that Peter begins this passage with. Verse 3, blessed be eulogetos, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give a eulogy. Let me tell you all of these wonderful things about God. Except, of course, God's not dead, is he? And this isn't a funeral. This letter isn't a funeral. Because we don't just eulogize the dead. Recently, I had uh, lunch with a friend, and for dessert, we ordered the profiteroles. And they came with this little jug of thick, dark, velvety, melted chocolate sauce. Okay, and no exaggeration, my friend looked at this little jug of melted chocolate and he went into ecstasies. <laughs> oh man, don't you just love Switzerland? What a country! All of his past experiences of eating melt-in-the-mouth Swiss chocolate and the anticipation of getting to do it again came together and they exploded and his heart overflowed. Switzerland, you are amazing. Okay, he was eulogizing. Okay, what does that for you? Okay, what loosens your tongue like that? Okay, what fills your heart with such joy that you can't but express it? Okay, what gets you eulogizing? Okay, first point then, the search for happiness and the need for hope. And for Peter, it was God that did it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for Peter, it was God. And it might be God for you, okay, or it might not be. Or you might say, you know, frankly, Martin, if I'm honest, at the moment, there is nothing right now that fills my heart with that kind of joy. And yet, we all want there to be something, don't we? Okay, we? We are all looking for that kind of joy, that kind of happiness. Blaise Pascal wrote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. In other words, every choice you and I make, we make because we think we will be happier by choosing this and not this. That joy is down this road, not this one. And the things that make us happy, 
that give us joy are the things that get us through the unhappy times. Okay, work is stressful, but hey, at least I get to ski on Saturday, or at least I do if there's snow. Okay, this relationship is rocky, but at least there's my bike. My boss is horrible, but hey, at least my husband, my wife, or my kids love me. And as you rehearse in your mind the happiness that these things bring you, they give you hope. Things are bad now, but hey, I've got this to look forward to. Okay, well, look why Peter blesses God. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And the reality of life for the people that Peter is writing to, the reality of their life is it's hard, it's hostile, and it's becoming increasingly so. Okay, they're facing increasing opposition for being Christians. In fact, he says in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, why does someone grieve? Okay, you grieve when you lose someone or something that is dear to you, that you love. So these guys are going through stuff that is taking stuff that they love or people that they love from them. They've become Christians and they are losing the respect of their neighbours. Maybe they're losing out on business and trade, so they're facing financial loss. And as happens today in the Hindu or the Muslim world, if you become a Christian like they've become Christians, they're facing the loss of family. You're not my son anymore. Sure, these guys are not being burned at the stake. Okay, not yet, anyway. And yet, they are facing stuff Peter describes in verse 7 as like being tested by fire. And when you're experiencing those kind of trials, when you're experiencing that kind of loss, more than ever, you rely on the stuff that makes you happy, that brings you joy. You rely on this to get you through the hard times because they tell you, these other things tell you, there's still hope. Life is still worth living. Okay, but what if you lose those things? What if you lose the things that help you cope with loss? Where are you supposed to find joy and happiness when the things that give you joy, that bring you happiness, are taken from you? I mean, let's say your happiness is a, a, a good thing. Let's say it's tied up with your family. What happens if tragedy strikes your family? Or maybe your sense of integrity helps you take those tough decisions at work, even if it costs you. But what happens when someone trashes your reputation and there's no getting it back? There's no recovering it. Well, I'll give you another example. Years ago, I was talking to a a young man who pursued sport aggressively, whether it's cycling or climbing or, or ski touring. And he was clear why. It helped him cope with the pressures of life. It made him feel alive. This was where he was happy. So I asked him, great, but what would you do if that was taken from you? If you couldn't do that, let's say you were in an accident and you were left disabled. And without hesitating, he said, I couldn't. I couldn't live without this. I'd have to end it. 
You see, when you lose the thing that helps you cope with loss, what then? Where are you going to go? It is why we all need what Peter calls here a living hope, a hope that can't be lost, that can't be taken from you, that doesn't die when everything else is dying. The question is, where can you get it? Second point then, new birth, new life. And the answer is, you can't get that hope. You have to be given it. You have to receive it. Verse 3 again. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, when someone is merciful to you, they are treating you, they are choosing not to treat you like you deserve to be treated. You've messed up, they know it, but they let it go. They show you mercy. And Peter is saying that when you become a Christian, you are a recipient of God's mercy. We've done stuff we know we shouldn't have done. And we haven't done stuff we know we should have done. And we've ignored God. Worse than that, we have tried to replace God by ourselves. But in his mercy, God doesn't treat us like we deserve to be treated. Rather than condemn us, Peter says he causes us to be born again. What does that mean? Well, Nicodemus, he had the same question, didn't he? And he was a Jewish leader. He comes to Jesus by night. But before he can ask Jesus his questions, Jesus tells him, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is incredulous. Be born again? How can anyone be born again? I mean, you can hardly climb up back inside of your mother again. Nicodemus thinks that the only way to start over is to literally start over. To erase the past, to restore to factory settings, for this Nicodemus to cease to exist and a brand new Nicodemus to be born. But that's not what Jesus or Peter means. Instead, When you first put your faith in Jesus and you trust him and not yourself, there is a very real sense in which the old you dies and our sins are forgiven. They're wiped away. But our past is not. Instead, God redeems our past and all of those things you wish you'd never done All of those things you wish had never been done to you, God takes them and he redeems them. He takes them and he turns them around and he uses them for good in your life and in the lives of others. It's the same Nicodemus. It's the same you. But it's a transformed you. And now you are alive in a way that you never were before. But of course, you can't do that to yourself, can you? I mean, when a baby is born, you don't congratulate the baby, do you? You don't go, okay, well done, you've given birth to yourself. No, you go to the mum, you say, you are incredible. Okay, well done. You cannot, you do not give birth to yourself. 
Being given birth is something that is done to you, not by you. And so Christianity does not offer you the chance of a do-it-yourself spiritual makeover. It is something that God does to you as he changes and transforms your heart by his spirit. Now you might think, yeah, but come on, is that kind of change really possible? Or is it just a fiction? I want you to look at what Peter grounds it in because it's a historical fact. Verse three again, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We had a whole class this morning by Christoph on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And you know, he took half an hour over this. We could take a month just on unpacking the implications of Christ's resurrection. I just, just briefly this morning, the fact that Christ rose from the dead physically is why you can have hope, a hope that lives when everything else is dying. That's what Peter says. It is why you can know deep happiness in the midst of grief and grievous loss. Christ has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. As James K. Smith, professor of philosophy at Calvin College writes in his latest book, How to Inhabit Time, when the dead are raised, not even death is the end. When not even the dead are lost, then nothing is lost. Okay, but there are alternatives, aren't there? There are alternatives to living with hope, especially when life is hard. We could fall back on nostalgia. Okay, we could look to the past and we could wish for the life that used to be, but that's useless. That is of no help in dealing with the trials of today. Or you could do what hope does and look to the future, but instead of looking to the future with hope, you look to the future with despair. You read the future, but not through the lens of Christ's resurrection. And it looks black. Instead, Peter says, when you experience the new life that flows out of Christ's resurrection, you can look squarely at today. You can be brutally honest about how bad things are, but you can live with hope because you know something better is coming. Third point, trouble now, riches to come. Look at verse four. Peter says that these Christians have been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, these guys are suffering because they are Christians and in an honour-shame culture like theirs, maybe some of their families have told them, you have brought shame on us, all of this Christian stuff. Worshipping this Jew, for you have brought shame on us and we are cutting you off. And to be cut off from your inheritance would be to be cut off from financial security. But Peter says, in his great mercy, 
God has caused you to be born again to an inheritance that no one can touch, that no one can take from you. Now, you and I are unlikely to be cut out of our parents' wills for being a Christian. Okay, though, as I say, in the Hindu or the Muslim world, that is exactly what happens. But you may still suffer loss. In 2, Corinthians, sorry, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't even have to actually achieve it. You just have to want to. You just have to desire to live a godly life, and it might cost you. That may be as low grade as snide remarks by your colleagues at work. It may be having potential career openings closed to you, like the, a Christian medical student who would love to go into obstetrics, but can't because they refuse to do abortions, can't get the posts. It might be that you find yourself terminated from your job because you refuse to engage in unethical practices, as has happened to at least two Westlake members that we know. It might be relational. You're a friend of mine who would have loved to marry, but the only offers she received were from non-Christians, and she rightly refused. Is that persecution? No, but it is still a loss of a future that she would have loved because of faithfulness to Jesus. And when that is the case, when you are facing loss, you need to know something better is coming. And it is, Peter says, an inheritance that doesn't go up and down like the stock market or like people's opinion of you. An inheritance that doesn't disappear like cryptocurrency or crumble like property. An inheritance, verse 4, kept in heaven for you. It's as if God is saying when you are facing loss, hey, look up. Look, turn your gaze upwards. Look, look at me. I've got it. It's safe here with me. Others may be writing you out, but I'm writing you in. This has got your name on it. The question is, is what's it? What's the inheritance? I think Aaron and the Old Testament priest were probably wondering exactly the same because all the other tribes, when they're ready to enter the promised land, they are all being allotted their inheritance. They're all being allotted these tracts of land that are going to belong to their tribe, that they're going to be able to pass on to their kids, but not the priests. They're left out. Instead, God says to them, you shall have no inheritance in their land. I am your portion and your inheritance. And like we sang in that song, when we see his face, to, to, ex to know God and to experience him, and to enjoy him, and to have all of his goodness flowing towards you for all of eternity. That is an inheritance better than land, or reputation, or career, or spouse. It is a gain far beyond any loss. And when the time comes, Peter says, it is yours. And the time will come.
It is kept for you and you are guarded for it, Peter says. Verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So like soldiers guard a city, these Christians and you and me, we are being guarded by God. Question is, guarded from what? What are we being guarded from? What are they being guarded from? Because they are clearly not being guarded from trouble, are they? They are clearly not being guarded from trials. You're not being guarded from trials. You're not being guarded from hostile bosses or critical family members. We're not being guarded from the loss of those that we love. So what are we being guarded from? We are being guarded. Peter says God will guard them and us through trials because the only thing that can rob us of our inheritance is to quit the race. It's to quit the race before the finish line and fail to claim the prize. And Peter is saying God will not let you do that. God is going to get you across the line. But how does he do it? Because maybe there are days when you are struggling to hold on to faith. Maybe there are days where you feel like you are going to quit the race. Or maybe you see your friends quitting the race and abandoning the faith. Well, Peter says he does it through faith. And he doesn't mean faith in yourself. He doesn't mean I can do this. If I just grit my teeth, if I just keep going, I can do this. It's faith in God. It's the same faith that got them into trouble. The same faith that got them into trouble is the same faith that is going to see them through to the other side. An unwavering belief that whatever anyone else says about us, whatever anyone else does to you, God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And if he's done that, he's not going to let go of you now. He's not going to give up on you. And he raised Christ from the dead. So not even death can triumph over you. It's why Peter says we are being guarded through faith, verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now today, sadly, it may be acceptable to talk about saving our country from those on the left or on the right. Okay, it may be acceptable to say that the planet needs saving from climate change, but the idea that you need saving, or I need saving, from our sin, okay, that's not so acceptable. Because it's everyone else who's the problem, not me. The Bible's much more realistic than that, isn't it? Because it says the problem's not out there, the problem is in here. But it also says God has the power to turn the in here around. By his spirit, he can transform our in here and he saves us. And the Bible talks of salvation in the past. We have been saved in the present. We are being saved and in the future we will be saved. When you first turn to Christ, 
you are saved. He forgives your sin. He takes you out of the domain of darkness and he transfers you into the kingdom of his son. But what then, you have been saved, but what follows is a lifetime of being saved until, as Peter says here, you are finally and completely saved, verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus comes back, and he will, he is going to complete his work of redemption. He's going to heal every hurt. He's going to make good every loss. And he is going to right every wrong. And that ultimate salvation, Peter says, is ready and <coughs> roaring to go. Like a brand new car, brand new car design at a motor show. It may be under wraps, it may be behind the curtain, you may not be able to see it yet, but it is ready for its unveiling. It doesn't need any more tweaks by the designers. It doesn't need any more tinkering by the engineers. All it needs is the appointed time for the CEO to pull back the curtains and reveal it. And your complete salvation, Peter says, is simply waiting for that moment. And knowing that, has the power to transform the way these under-pressure Christians responded to what they were facing. Last point then, joy in the midst of trial. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I want you to imagine your life and eternity to come, your eternal life from now, as a piece of string that runs infinitely on. And for tens and hundreds and thousands of kilometers, you are going to enjoy God and all of his goodness for all of eternity. In comparison to those thousands of kilometers your life and your trials and what you're dealing with now is just a centimetre or two. It's what Peter calls a little while. Peter's not minimising your suffering. He's not minimising our loss. Peter knows what it is to suffer. It is that in comparison to the endless ocean of blessing that God has in store for you in Christ. What we suffer now is just a drop. But standing in the middle of suffering, we can struggle to see that, can't we? We struggle to make that comparison. In fact, it doesn't even have to be suffering. You know, just think about myself. Life can be frustrating. Things aren't going the way I want. And I can be like Mr. Magoo. How many of you know Mr. Magoo? I asked my family, none of them know who Mr. Magoo is. It's only us oldies. Yeah, it's all the oldies who know who Mr. Magoo is. Okay, Mr. Magoo is this old cartoon character who was so short-sighted that he kept on getting into trouble because he would misread situations because he can't see properly. And... Hey, I don't know about you, that is exactly what I can be like. I can be too theologically, I can be theologically too short-sighted to read life right. I'm, I read things wrong 
I mistake these trials as final things, as ultimate things. I fixate on these few centimetres of my life because I fail to read them in the light of all that Jesus has done, is doing and will do for me for all of eternity. But when the people that Peter's writing to, as they did, he says, in this you are rejoicing. They've got it. They've learned this lesson. They're applying it to their hearts. When they fixed their eyes on the future, joy flooded back into their present. Okay, but did you notice the words, if necessary? Verse six again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, why does Peter think trials are necessary? Because if you and I got to vote on this, okay, we would almost certainly vote, no, thank you very much, those are unnecessary. I do not need trials in my life. I want happiness. Well, look what Peter goes on to say, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, okay, in other words, you can rejoice during trials because there's a point to them. They're necessary. And you're not experiencing what you are experiencing just because of the malice of your boss or the meanness of a family member or the random chance of nature. It is that God is using this to refine your faith, a faith, a faith verse seven, that is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Okay, so just like fire refines gold, hardship refines faith. How does it do it? By burning away our self-confidence, by bringing idols to the surface, by purging us of wrong motives, by humbling our pride. And as it does, this season of pain can become a season where God is working out more of the character of Jesus into our lives. I want you to think about how that might work. Okay, think about how that might work in your life. Okay, maybe, maybe you have been or are being harshly treated by others and it hurts. But how is God using that in your life to make you more gentle and generous to others? You look at that and you think, I don't want to be like that. I'm going to be like this. Or maybe someone you love broke their promise to you but God is redeeming that by making you a person who wants to keep your word to those who love. I think about myself for reasons to do with his own upbringing. My father was emotionally and often physically absent and that has left its scars. But God has used that to make me want to be a dad who is present. And how does God do all of that? He does it through the trials that we go through. Okay, but there's another reason you can rejoice in trials. They prove your faith is genuine. Because when you continue to trust God in the midst of your trial, it is proof that you are the real deal. There are all of these painful reasons why you could walk away. There are all of these very genuine reasons why you could turn away from Christ but you don't. And just like gold has its hallmarks to prove it is genuine, that not turning away 
is the hallmark of genuine faith. And that kind of faith comes with a reward. It is faith, faith, verse 7, that may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be the reason for even more eulogies. But for who? Well, most commentators agree, for you. For you, for the person who keeps going during trials, it is to hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But ultimately, it's more glory for Jesus because he's the one who got you there. He's the one who rescued you. He's the one who redeemed you. He is the one who paid the ultimate price for you to get you there. And that is a reason to suffer well, Peter says, because you love him. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Okay, Peter had seen Jesus. But what Peter's saying is, yeah, but that's not the crucial issue for whether or not you can live with joy and hope now. It's not whether or not you saw Jesus. Plenty of Peter's contemporaries saw Jesus, but what did they see? They saw Jesus, son of Joseph, not Jesus, son of God. They saw a carpenter, not the creator. Because you could see Jesus and still not see him for who he really is, as the one to be loved above every love. But these early Christians did see Jesus like that. They saw Jesus as the one to be loved, and they loved him like that. And as a result, verse 8 they rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, so to finish, the Christian faith, what it means to be saved, is not about obeying a list of rules. It's not about being moral. It's not even about a safe, self-made spiritual makeover. It's not even about enduring suffering with a good British stiff upper lip. It is about your search for happiness being met in Jesus Christ. It is about you being redeemed from your past and God making all things new. And as a result, hope and joy flooding your life now, even when now is hard. Let's pray.